0: The Foundation hosts podcasts to encourage a lively exchange of ideas related to our mission. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the Foundation's positions, strategies, or opinions. Welcome to the Pioneering Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. On this podcast, we explore cutting edge ideas with the potential to build a culture of health. In a culture of health, everyone in our diverse society can live healthier lives now and for generations to come. Find us on iTunes or SoundCloud and join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag rwjfpodcast. I'm your host, Lori Melliker, a director at the foundation. Like most of you, I'd heard the term virtual reality for quite some time but the concept was really hard for me to grasp, like something out of science fiction or The Matrix. But I recently got to experience it firsthand. And let me tell you, for those of you who have not yet had the chance, it's intense and amazing. And it's easy to see how this is going to change the way that all of us see, experience, and understand our world. On today's episode, we'll hear from Jeremy Balenson, a world-renowned expert and founding director of Stanford's Virtual Human Interaction Lab, a lab doing cutting-edge work in the area of virtual reality technology. Jeremy is looking at how this medium, which will soon replace TV or online videos as our entertainment, can be used for social good. While others are looking at ways virtual reality can enhance our movie watching experience, Jeremy is looking at ways it can help improve people's lives and improve society. He's studied the ways that virtual reality can help people prepare for earthquakes conquer their fear of heights, and even become more altruistic. So how does that fit into our quest to help build a culture of health in America? Well, consider this. Representatives from both the NBA and the NFL recently visited Jeremy's lab to explore how virtual reality can enhance the fan experience and to understand how it might be used to help players manage their emotions on the field and at home. How, you might ask? By building empathy that elusive quality that affects so many of our human to human interactions. Yes, we've heard what many of you have heard, that empathy can't be taught. We're working with Jeremy to explore the potential of virtual reality to do just that, teach empathy. And we wanna see if that empathy persists long past the interaction. Our colleague Tracy Costigan sat down with Jeremy to learn more about this exploration.
1: Jeremy, thanks so much for being here.
2: I'm delighted to talk to you. Thanks for having me.
1: So fill us in on virtual reality. How advanced is the technology? How is it being used in the real world now outside of the laboratory?
2: So I've been building immersive virtual reality and testing psychology of being inside of virtual reality for almost 20 years, and I've seen more change to the technology in the past year than probably in the last 19 years combined. It's been a real renaissance period in terms of the technology getting better, getting cheaper, getting more pervasive, and it's a very special time to be seeing the tech giants, for example, Google and Microsoft and Facebook and Sony and Samsung, all these hardware companies competing to get the technology out to consumers, and at the same time, I'm seeing all sorts of scientists and policymakers and philanthropists thinking about how can I leverage this technology to help people and to create good experiences.
1: What exactly is a virtual reality intervention? What does it look like? Or really, how does it feel?
2: Virtual reality is a technology that perceptually surrounds you. So imagine instead of watching a movie, you're inside of the movie. The way this works is as you move around a physical room, as you walk, as you turn your head, We're changing what you see, what you hear, even what your skin feels via virtual touch as a function of that movement. So when you watch TV, it's largely a a passive experience. When you're in virtual reality, everything inside the simulation responds to the way that your body moves, and you're perceptually surrounded by the information. You see in 360 degrees, you see in stereo, you hear the sound spatially isolated, and you feel things on your skin. It's a very compelling, immersive experience. So we build and test simulations designed to give you what I call aha moments, these very intense experiences that are transformative. And so in the real world, we get these and they're fantastic or they're traumatic, but they're very intense and they happen rarely. In virtual reality, you can give someone a really intense experience that's designed to make them think about who they are and perhaps change their behavior for the better.
1: Can you give us some specific examples of virtual reality being used for social good?
2: A nice example to talk about is toilet paper. It turns out that most people use non-recycled toilet paper. Non-recycled toilet paper is made from pulp, from second-growth forests and from first-growth forests. How do you get people to stop cutting down trees just to use toilet paper? And so in our experiments, if you use non-recycled toilet paper, you come to the lab and we force you to cut down virtual trees. Compared to control conditions, such as watching a video of a tree getting cut down, or reading about deforestation, subjects who cut down a virtual tree use less paper in the physical world. And what we've done is we've made the connection between your behavior, which is not recycling, and the outcome of that behavior, which is deforestation, much more salient, much more intense. Now, if I were to do that experiment, by having people drive to the forest and cut down trees, it would be effective. It would just be very counterproductive cutting down trees to teach deforestation would be a bad policy to put into schools.
1: So how long do the effects of virtual reality last?
2: In general, when we check to see how long the effects of virtual reality last, we find that the effects last longer, say, than watching a video. So the VR lasts longer than other media. But the question that's important to think about is, compared to a real-life experience, how long does a virtual treatment last? So the tree-cutting experiments have been replicated both here at Stanford and then Grace On at the University of Georgia has also replicated it. And she's looked at effects one week out. So she's polled people a week later to see if these effects remain. And she's shown that compared to control conditions such as video, the immersive experiences last longer when you check a week later. That being said, we need to understand how long this lasts. Does it last more than a week? I will say anecdotally, people that come to my lab and cut down this virtual tree, I get phone calls from people and they say, months later, when I walk down that supermarket aisle and I look at the toilet paper, I think about cutting down that tree. There's something very special about body movement, about this embodied cognition, this muscle memory, which is you literally moved your arms and cut this tree down, and that stays with you. You can imagine that if you were forced to go cut down a tree up here in San Francisco in the Bay Area, we've got this place called Muir Woods where we've got these beautiful redwoods, if I physically went and cut that tree down, that would last with me for a lifetime. The question is, how long does a virtual version of that last? And that's why we're working with the foundation to really understand this question.
1: So for your project with us, you're looking at teaching empathy through virtual reality. Can you talk a bit more about this? Why empathy?
2: Since about 2002, I've been studying a phenomenon called walking a mile in digital shoes what happens when you literally look down and you see your body, your avatar, we call this your body in virtual reality, you move your arms and you see that your arms are a different skin color. Or I look down and I see that I'm wearing a dress and I see a female body instead of a male body. There's a sociological theory called the contact hypothesis which is that if people of different races spend time with each other, they get contact, they're gonna learn to understand one another. You can think of embodiment as hyper-contact or It's a very intense version where instead of being near someone, you become them. And so the first study we ever ran in this arena was about ageism. We had 20-year-old subjects walk up to a virtual mirror, and as they move their physical arms and legs in the physical world, in VR they were looking at their mirror reflection. Then we hit a button, and they saw themselves how they're going to look when they're 65 years old. They then spend about two minutes accomplishing what we call body transfer, which is by moving your body in a specific way, by turning your head and moving your arms and seeing your image move with you, you create the illusion, the psychological illusion, that it really is you in the mirror. You then turn around and there's someone else in virtual reality with you and you have a conversation, and that person then exhibits prejudice. They discriminate against you because of your age. They treat you poorly, they assume that you're slow, that you're not intelligent, that you're not relevant, and this is very intense. There's something psychologically different about experiencing prejudice when you're wearing the body of someone that is the target of that prejudice compared to pretending, say, in role-playing games or watching a video. You get personalized experience, and we call this walking a mile in someone else's shoes. Our experiments have demonstrated that compared to control conditions, when you become someone else and experience discrimination or experience a very intense uh, situation while wearing that body, the effects of the empathy treatment, this diversity training, they really resonate.
1: Do we know for sure that virtual reality can teach empathy? Or is that something you're exploring in this study?
2: Between my lab and a handful of other labs across the world, I would say there's been about 20 experiments that have tried to use virtual reality as a way to teach empathy. My assessment of the field is that a majority of them have shown that virtual reality does teach empathy, and I'd say more than half of them show that it does so better than control conditions. That being said, it's my hope that we can build these simulations and distribute them, say, to schools and in libraries and as part of the suite that comes with video games, and it's going to become a standard operating procedure that everyone does the same way you do corporate diversity training. To get to that level, we've got to know for sure. And one of the goals of the project that we're doing with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is to thoroughly understand how robust these findings are, how well they work, how long the effects last, do they work on everyone, does it work, what percentage of times are the treatments effective, to really get a a better understanding of the robustness of these effects so that we can really be sure.
1: So as you just alluded to, this research is unique in that you'll be going into the field rather than testing the technology in the lab. You'll be interacting with people in libraries, malls, even the train station. Why do you do it this way? Why is it important?
2: So for close to 20 years, I've been running psychology experiments on people inside of immersive virtual reality, and there is a limitation of my research, which is that my experimental subjects tend to be college freshmen and sophomores. They tend to be people at wealthy universities, and we don't have great variance in demographics, in socioeconomic status, in age. For the first time in history, the technology has now gotten portable. And so we are currently building, from an engineering perspective, what I call a suitcase system. It's a a laptop computer, a head-mounted display, and then a system of cameras and magnetic sensors that can track the way that you move, and we're making it all work inside of a tent. What we're going to do with this mobile unit, this suitcase system, is we're going to bring it to places where we can test our empathy treatments on people from all walks of life demographic variance, socioeconomic status, age variance, and really getting different types of people so that we can truly see how well these effects generalize. Our collaborator on this project, Jamil Zaki, he studies the way people are different in terms of how they Empathize. So some people are more motivated to display empathy than others, and there's individual differences in how people think about empathy and how empathy works on people. And we are going to get large samples, and when I say a large sample, for a year we're going to tunnel vision and take the system out, as you said, to libraries and to train stations. We're going to hope to get a sample size of a 1,000 people. We're really going to understand how our empathy treatments work across people and then within different subsets of the people in terms of not only demographics variants, but personality variants. So, Professor Zaki has demonstrated that there are some people who believe empathy is changeable. It's a malleable trait, and for those people, we're hopeful that a virtual reality simulation may work better. We're going to look at all sorts of individual differences and see how well our treatments work on different types of people.
0: We're talking with Jeremy Balenson, a world-renowned expert on virtual reality. Is this conversation creating sparks in your brain? How can we one day use virtual reality to address challenges in health and healthcare? We'd love to hear your ideas. Share them by visiting rwjf.org podcast or tweeting your ideas with hashtag rwjfpodcast. Let's get back to Jeremy and
1: Tracy's conversation. Let's talk more about the power of virtual reality to help build a culture of health. One area that the Foundation is doing a lot of work in is Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACEs. We're particularly interested in preventing or mitigating the negative effects of ACEs by focusing on social-emotional development in children, families, and caregivers. So how could you use this technology to help families build safe, stable, and nurturing relationships? What role do you see there?
2: There's a lot of ways to think about virtual reality as a medium that can help people understand each other. If you're trying to teach parents patience with their children, for example, you're waiting for your three-year-old daughter to put on her shoes, and she's having a hard time figuring out which one is for the left and for the right. And from the parent's perspective, you're in a rush, and you've got these two kids, and you're trying to get breakfast and get to preschool on time and avoid traffic, and the kid just is having a hard time, so what you can do is you can give parents a treatment where they put on the virtual reality helmet and they look down at their feet and we've made it really, really, really hard by changing the angles of the shoe to figure out which one is left and which one is right. In other words, we can have the parent experience the life as a child as a way of learning to have patience by understanding that things are much harder for them. So within the family, all sorts of applications towards bridging this understanding gap, getting people to be more thoughtful towards one another.
1: Those are great examples of how to teach patience and empathy to parents. There's huge potential there. Then there's the education system. To build a culture of health, schools need to not only foster academic learning, but also social and emotional development among students. So how do you see virtual reality applied to this space?
2: I've been for 20 years jumping up and down and doing backflips saying, let's do virtual reality for education. And for the most part, It's been hard to convince people until about a year ago. Now that all the tech giants are trying to figure out how to get all the virtual reality hardware in your living room, all of a sudden everybody wants content and it's a very special time where I used to have to go to teachers and say, imagine that you had this, I've now got teachers and administrators and principals and policymakers coming to me saying, Jeremy, let's get VR in the classroom, what should it look like? What do we put in there? And it's a really fun time and a really special time to be thinking about how to get the right type of VR in classrooms, given that the price of an immersive virtual reality system is, in some cases, less than a laptop.
1: So this really is the right time to spread these technologies, get them into schools and other settings to support health and development.
2: This is the exact right time to be thinking about what to put in classrooms in about a year, about six months actually, you're gonna see pervasive use of this technology in the homes for video games and for entertainment. And it's our job to think about let's build content that can be used to teach, used to teach social skills, used to teach social skills like empathy. Let's be ahead of the curve, let's make this content now, let's make it available so when the hardware is there, we can be the first there to make sure that we're getting some good messages across. The neat thing about any virtual reality lessons that we want to put in schools is that once you make one digital version of this, you can make a billion copies for free.
1: Free is good. We've been talking about using virtual reality as a tool for building empathy and the link between that and health. I'm wondering, what are some other applications you see or have seen in terms of virtual reality being used in the health arena?
2: Virtual reality as a medium is an extremely effective tool for reducing pain. So for about 20 years, scholars have been putting people in immersive virtual reality with the goal of distracting them from a very painful procedure, for example, changing your bandages if you're a burn victim. And there's been great studies showing massive, massive reductions, for example, 50% reduction in the subjective experience of pain if you're immersed, say, in something called snow world while they are removing your bandages. One of my graduate students, Jessie Fox, who's now a professor at Ohio State University, she did one of the first studies on virtual reality and weight loss. Imagine you looked in a mirror and you saw your own mirror image and it looked like you. And by running in place in the physical world, you saw your mirror image actually get thinner as a function of your physical movement. Subjects who saw their inspirational self in the mirror change as a function of their movement and saw the weight loss happen in a very visceral experiential way, they Exercise more in the 24-hour period after the experiment. They embodied this message because they saw this very visceral expression of their physical behavior on their avatar, and it's a really nice tool to teach people how to manage their weight loss. Jessie's also run experiments where she changes your avatar's body shape as a function of what you're eating, and she shows results that way as well.
1: This has just been so interesting, Jeremy. So looking ahead, where do you think virtual reality will be? 10 years from now, where do you hope it'll be?
2: Looking ahead 10 years from now feels like 50 years given how the technology is accelerating. Let me try to project out five years. In five years, the technology is going to be, I I don't wanna say disposable, because I hope we do not evolve into a disposable hardware culture, but so cheap and so light and so portable, everyone's gonna have it. How can we use this medium in all sorts of domains ranging from entertainment to safety to learning life lessons like empathy? It's exciting to actually have a forum to talk about it, to get to talk to people like you, to get to be funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and to work with the experts that you guys have there, to be able to talk to folks all across the planet about how we're going to use this. It's really exciting.
1: It was really fun hearing everything you had to say, Jeremy. Thanks.
2: Thank you for promoting my work and giving me the opportunity. It's, uh, It's a real treat.
1: Wow,
0: I hope you had as much fun as I did eavesdropping on Tracy and Jeremy's fascinating conversation. I'd love to know what you thought, and I'd love to hear any ideas or thoughts this conversation inspired. Tell us where you think virtual reality can lead to breakthroughs in health by visiting rwjf.org slash podcast or tweeting your ideas with hashtag rwjfpodcast. Be part of the conversation. While I have your attention, I'd like to invite you to join an upcoming RWJF First Friday Google Hangout on Friday, November 6th. We'll be talking more about our vision to build a culture of health and sharing our plan for measuring our collective progress. Come see where your current and future efforts to improve health and healthcare fit in. Sign up at rwjf.org firstfriday. If you subscribe to the Pioneering Ideas podcast on iTunes today, you'll automatically receive next month's episode, which will focus on mindfulness. We'll speak with Dr. Amit Sood, professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic and author of the Mayo Clinic Handbook for Happiness, a four-step plan for resilient living. He's doing some amazing work to help people reduce anxiety and find greater fulfillment in life. I believe science
1: is basically a systematic study of spirituality. Science doesn't know that. Science is seeking the truth, and spirituality is seeking the truth. So they are both both eventually converge. And it is the integration of science and spirituality which is where the future is.
0: Hear the full conversation on our next episode and learn why the Mayo Clinic, an institution known for its excellence in Western medicine, is making a big bet on mindfulness. Thanks so much for listening today, and thanks to Jeremy Balenson and Tracy Costigan for sharing their conversation with us. You can join the discussion about the ideas in today's episode and find related links all at rwjf.org slash podcast or on Twitter at hashtag rwjfpodcast. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Our listeners know that we're always interested in hearing your cutting-edge ideas for building a culture of health. We accept brief proposals for pioneering ideas year round. Learn more at rwjf.org slash pioneering ideas. Be well.